your positive, positive, positive imprint. Stories are everywhere. People and their positive action inspire positive achievements. Your PI could mean the world to you. Get ready for your positive imprint. Hello, this is Catherine, your host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive achievements inspire positive thought and action. Exceptional people rising to the challenge. Music by the talented Chris Knoll. Check out his music and learn more about him at chrisknoll.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-N-O-L-E. There's fabulous music and lots of new New music too. Well, recently I was a guest on Danny Brown's podcast show, Podcaster Stories, a podcast featuring stories of the people behind the voice. Danny, I was honored. Thank you. You can listen to this episode featuring me, season two, episode seven, talking with Catherine of Your Positive Imprint from his website, podcaststories.com, or of course, from your favorite podcast platform. And a few more updates right quick. Today's episode is the last one of 2020. I will return in 2021 in three weeks time from today. Yes, I will return in three weeks time from today. During this time, please listen to other positive imprints. We have amazing people in our world community. Now, I am seeking a honey beekeeper in Europe, Africa, or Australia. If you know one, please let me know. And then our little Aussie sweetheart dog, Maka, is having surgery this week. Something that, of course, I am quite worried about and nervous about. Her surgery's been postponed three times already because of COVID and other issues with the clinic. So please send over lots of positive thoughts, and those are so much appreciated. Well, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, Your Positive Imprint. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Visit my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, where you can sign up for podcast updates and also follow this podcast. Under the play button is a subscribe button that will take you to easy links for some podcast platforms. You can also listen and follow my show from your favorite podcast platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Amazon Music, including Alexa. Or, of course, listen from your own favorite favorite podcast platform. And please hit that subscribe, follow, or download button now. Remember, this is a free podcast. Your positive imprint. What's your PI? Today, my guest is Father Ray Kelly. He is a world-renowned Catholic priest. He is from Ireland, and his voice has been an angelic one for the world. Over the years, but especially this year, Father has inspired millions with his vocal arrangement of R.E.M.'s song, Everybody Hurts, and he shares this song on this episode. And this song will inspire and prepare you for 2021. And then, of course, his Hallelujah wedding rendition continues to grow with more than 70 million views. Well, Father and I had a conversation full of laughter, lots of inspiration, but what strikes me most of all is how absolutely human Father Ray Kelly is. He's known for so many different positive imprints. Well, on today's episode, Father Ray will humanize his journey into the priesthood, and you'll also love his little tidbits that he shares about his experiences on Britain's Got Talent. He's also written a book. Hallelujah, Memoirs of a Singing Priest, which is available on Amazon. Now, I'm going to be giving away one book. If you'd like to be placed in the drawing, which will be held on January 4th, then please sign up. You can go to my website, yourpositiveimprint.com, and go to the Get in Touch menu and sign up for email updates by January 3rd. On January 4th, I will draw and notify the winner of the book.
And if you missed it, Father also shared a message of hope, which was his special Christmas episode. And that episode is number 109-109. Father Ray shares his Christmas message of hope. Well, it's not the New Year yet, but Happy New Year. Salud. Skol. Cheers. Kia And thank you so much for listening to Your Positive Imprint. See you in 2021. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.? Hello, Father Ray over there in Ireland. It is so wonderful to see you. Yeah, great to be talking to you too, Catherine. Absolutely. And now a journey into the priesthood. I guess uh, I was a late vocation. I was very late to the priesthood. I was about, uh, I was 35 years of age when I was ordained. So I had worked in Dublin for about nearly nearly 11 years in the, in the civil service and the Irish government offices there. And um, I remember when I was 16 or 17, thinking about priesthood, all right, but uh, I think something scared me off very, very fast. And I, I, then I got a job and I started having money in my pocket. So that changed me completely <laughs> as regards <laughs> thinking about priesthood. <laughs> and it's strange then how things come back to you. You know, I was about, um, I remember back in 1979, Pope John Paul II came to Ireland. And uh, it was a great occasion that and we had Pope Francis in Ireland as well. But Pope John Paul came in September of 79. And I thought uh, it was a great experience to meet the Pope and uh, go. I was in, in one of the, the locations where he was saying mass and all of that. And then the following year, a group of us in, in Dublin, working in Dublin, part of the Catholic Youth Council, decided to pay a return visit to, to Rome to thank Pope John Paul for coming to Ireland. And... Uh, so an organization was set up where about a thousand young people traveled over to Rome for a nine day trip, a nine day pilgrimage, if you like. And I was on that with a number of my friends from work as well. And that was a great experience in itself. And um, we had met him in St. Peter's Square. And then he invited us out to Castel Gandolfo for a mass with us. And uh, and then he invited us the following evening back to Castel Gandolfo again for a concert where he, he gave shared with us a, a, a talk. And then we put on a concert for him. And I remember singing at the time. Uh, I was one of the ones picked to entertain him. And I remember singing a song called Danny Boy. And uh, afterwards, he presented me with the rosary beads, as he usually does to most people. Yeah. And it was a great experience. And I got to, to photograph taken with him with our group as well. So thought no more about that. You know, that was fine, lovely experience and all that. And it's strange when I come back then. Uh, you've been Catholic now. You might be familiar with Lent obviously, the season of Lent. And you know how we, we like to do little sacrifices or whatever, uh, whether it's giving up sugar in your tea or your coffee or uh, whether it's going, as children, we'd be encouraged to go off sweets maybe or something. And remember when I was young, my father used to always make sure we'd get up and go to mass during the mornings of Lent before school. So I kind of thought when I came back from Rome that time, you know, I must do something for Lent now this year because I would have been a kind of a hit and miss Catholic kind of go to mass. <laughs> When I, when I was home at weekends, my mother and father were there. I'd go to Mass with them. But when I was back in Dublin, you know, I was in the big lights, the big city. You know, I had more, more, more things to worry about than going to church on a Sunday or something like that. So anyway, I started going to Mass um, during the season of Lent. And the church was just across the road from where I worked. And uh, I began to uh, enjoy it. It was a lovely 20-minute, half-hour relaxing time, about 8 o'clock, half 8 in the morning. And then I'd go into work after that and do my daily work. I suppose about maybe three. Yeah, I went through the whole season of Lent 
and Easter came then. And then I kind of missed it. And I says, maybe I'll continue to do that, you know. And thought no more about it. Just got up every morning a bit earlier and went to Mass. And I suppose maybe about six months into doing that, I began to have these thoughts in my head. And the thought was, Ray, you know, it was like somebody was speaking to you almost in your head. Ray, you know, you could be up there doing what that guy is doing. And that was the line. Ray, you could be up there doing, you know, what that guy is doing. I thought no more about it for a while. And I said, oh, no, you're definitely cracking up here now. No way. No way. No way would you even think about being up there. Absolutely not. So that went on for a while. And then it would go for a while. And I'd be saying, yeah, it was all in my head. It definitely was in my head. You know, it's gone now. Thanks be to God. It's gone. It's finished. And then I, when it was gone for so long, I was a bit disappointed. And then it would come back again. So it was like almost a a tug of war going on in my head for a long, long, for maybe over a year. And uh, the following year, then John Paul II came to UK. And I remember going over to Edinburgh to visit him. I think it was 1981 or 82. Uh, and um, we had a great experience again. We went to Mass. He was in Murrayfield, said Mass in Murrayfield, the rugby pitch in Murrayfield. Then I came back from there and this thing was still annoying me and it was bugging me and I didn't know what to do with it. And I said to myself, the only way I can deal with this now is, is, is talk to somebody, another priest about it. And I did. I talked to a priest in Dublin uh, with the order of the MSCs, the Sacred Heart Missionary Priest Order. And he sat me down and we chatted and I told him what was going on. And he said, the best thing to do is really is really come in for a weekend into the seminary and see what it's like. You know, so told nobody. Had no idea whatsoever I was going. I didn't just told my mother and father I wasn't going home that weekend. <laughs> didn't, didn't tell them what was happening or a thing. And I went for a weekend to live in with these guys in, in Black Rock in Dublin, just out on the south side of Dublin. And I really enjoyed it. And it was met a lot of the other students and I chatted with them. And, you know, I felt kind of very much at home. And I came home then with the idea that maybe I'd give it a try. And then I said, well, I better break the news to my mother and father. So... I sat down with mother and father and I told them because they knew there was something wrong with me and they were worried in case maybe I was ill or something and I didn't want to tell them, you know, or that, you know. So anyway, I uh, sat down with my mother and father and explained to them what was going on. And uh, I, my mother then said, um, well, her cousin, Father Joe Pettit, is a Kiltegan priest. I'm another missionary order, St. Patrick's Missionary Society. They have a house in the UK, as far as I know, and they have houses in America as well. And Father Joe was home from Nigeria on, after, on holidays and he was visiting us. And my mother told him about what I was thinking. And he said, why don't you try Kiltegan, the order that we used belong to? And I thought, well, maybe I would, you know, and I, it's kind of like when you when you're looking for something, you shop around. Basically, you know, you want to get the best product. <laughs> you want to go to the best place, you know. So, so anyway, I met Father Joe and I contacted the Kiltegan fathers. And Easter was coming up and they invited me to go for a few days to Kiltegan in County Wicklow, which is right in the mountains of County Wicklow. It's a beautiful area. And um, I went for a, what we call a live in there, which would be you go in from maybe it was Holy Week. So I went in from about Holy Thursday up to Easter Sunday. And uh, even driving into the place, it was so remote and so peaceful. And there was a lake and surrounded by fields and trees oh, wow. and cows mooing in the field and, and animals all around. I says, this is lovely. This is just now. And, and I kind of almost there and then I kind of made the decision because I felt if I wanted to continue with this, I didn't want to be in Dublin as well because I'd lived in Dublin for 11 years. And I kind of felt, well, you know, 
it mightn't be good for my vocation if I'm really thinking about this because I'd have my friends there still and they'd be coming to visit me and all of that. So I kind of felt that I better make the cut off as best I could. So that's what I exactly did. And uh, told on all my, I think I only found out actually recently, my mother was trying to contact somebody to see what she make. Would they try and get me to change my mind? But oh my uh, I, goodness. Well, you see, mothers would do that because <laughs> she she was, you know, I was in the civil service. It was her responsibility. She got me the job initially after interviews and that going for interviews. And it was like going back those years back in the in the uh, 70s. You got into the civil service, you were secure for life. You had a good pensionable job, you know, no more hitches. You'd be able to get a mortgage, have your own car and all of that. And indeed, I had all that during my years there. But uh, to give up all that now didn't make sense to my mother at all, you know. So I suppose inadvertently she was trying to maybe get around it to see, but to persuade me not, not to go. But she didn't actually say it to me directly. But in the meantime, anyway, I did. I sold my house. I sold my car. I packed up my job. And I left for Kiltegan in for September of 1982. And I spent seven years. First year was a spiritual year in which you kind of um, learning about prayer. And there was 18 of us in the class. So we were I was the oldest, probably I was about 29 at the time. And uh, we got on. It was my first experience as well of actually um, living in a community life, you know, because I'd always been independent. I never went to a boarding school. You know, I'd always either lived at home or in my own apartments in Dublin or whatever. So this was a whole new experience for me. And I suppose, you know, in hindsight, looking back in it, I never really, only recent times, and I've started to write a book, right? And it was only when I was writing about all of this that I realized, you know, the amount of actually what I did give up. But I never, I never sort of gave myself a pat on the back now for doing anything like uh -huh. that. Or anything. I just felt that this was what I had to do. And I suppose, you know, the power of God is, is, is unreal in all our lives. And I suppose that was power was working there. The Holy Spirit was working there all the time. And I just didn't recognize it. I just felt well, this is what I have to do now. But I did do did give it just try it for one year. And I said one year and one year only. And if this doesn't work out, I was lucky that I had my job to go back to. They were going to hold the job for me for 12 years, which was fantastic. For 12 years? 12 years. Yeah. Which was amazing. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So. Even if I left after two years or three years or even if I, after I was ordained and I didn't want to be a priest anymore, I could still get my job back in the civil service. So that was that was that was a really positive thing for me as well, because I felt a little bit more secure then in making this big change in my life, you know. So that was it. I joined the spiritual year class. We we were, uh, as I said, a class of 18. We were learning about prayer, but it was more there was no pressure on studies as such. We had lectures. But there was no pressure on prayer, on, on studies, as much as you achieve, you achieve the level you could achieve. And they were happy with that. And if you improve on it, you keep that standard up as well. But it was a great year. One of the first things we had to prepare for was a musical. And the kid, oh, we had, a, we had a, music, a guy coming into us producing a musical and teaching us um, homiletics and teaching us um, speech and drama, uh, an ex-army colonel. And uh, very British posh accent. You can imagine one of these big guys, big stout man with a big cigar out of his mouth. That kind of an image, you know. <laughs> but he was—he was—he was a real, a real lovable character, you know. He actually chose the musical *The King and I*. Now you can imagine eighteen guys trying to act out the musical *The King and I*, and amazingly, it worked. We were all kind of—I um, was type typecast as Lady Tiang, the king's first wife. Another guy was pre uh, Anna. <laughs> Anna from the UK, who was coming out as the, the governess. 
And it was just unreal. But the whole aim behind it really was for us to accept ourselves as we are, uh, warts and all, you know, get over your inhibitions, you know, and stuff like that. Even he put his he put his maybe lying on the ground sort of um, and he put on some Strauss music and he put put us through some maybe meditations. And sometimes he'd get up and and t- tell us to waltz around like fairies, basically around around the place. And of course, some of the guys were so macho, they were kind of rebelling against the whole thing anyway. You know, <laughs> yeah, I can but imagine. anyway, he, he got the message through that you look at these are OK. And even so, I remember one time he used to tell his boys, when you get out of your bedroom in the morning, go to your mirror and you look at the mirror and say, I am beautiful, you know, this kind of thing, you know. So, um, I mean, he was very ahead of his time, really, in, in his thinking and working with us. So it was a great experience. And then we came to what's called a St. Ignatian retreat, which is a 30 day retreat, 30 days of silence. And uh, that was difficult, but we had a break during it where we could talk for one day, I think one or two days during the whole 30 days again. And we go through the whole story of Jesus's passion and, and, and all of that and meditations. And uh, it finishes up then the Friday after Good Friday, which is Holy or um, Easter Sunday and then the following Friday. So then family could come and visit us. So that was the first year. Then there was two more years of philosophy down in Cork in, in, in County Cork in the south of Ireland. And then I was back in the senior house in Kiltegan for three or four more years where I did my theology. And uh, during that time, then there was a lot of music involved in our lives because a lot of the guys that was, I was with had were great musicians, piano, keyboards, um, guitars. I could sing. There was a lot of other guys could sing. So we had some great music. And in our second year in theology there, this lady called Kathleen Cullen uh, was running the Dublin City Marathon and she wanted to raise some funds. And she asked some of us, would we write a song for it to kind of raise money for for youth aid in Africa and different things like that. So um, I, I wrote a song and another guy put music to it, Eric Armour from Scotland, Sterling in Scotland. And actually, we actually recorded it. And now I'm talking about one of the, the small, the vinyl, you know, records. I have that record still. And I mean, um, we recorded it anyway. And that was our first experience, my first experience of ever being in a recording studio. And we actually formed a group then because we needed a title and a band name. We called ourselves Rafiki which is a Swahili word meaning friends. And there was I five of us. I love that. In... That's just, that's very, that's very positive. That's inspiring. We were, we were, I suppose we were nearly before like Take That and we were before Westlife and Boyzone and all these guys. We were kind of like priest zone, really. You know, we were students to be priests, but we were, had our own boy band for want of a better word, if you know what I mean. And uh, we used to do then charity gigs and people would come into the college and we'd entertain them as well and all of that kind of thing. So that's kind of where all that came from. And, and then I was ordained. And after I was ordained, then in 1989, I was assigned to South Africa. So I had to get visas and all of that to go to South Africa. And uh, went out in September of 89, after being ordained in the June of 89. Then I was out there only three months, about September, to and December. And I'm going to back up for a second. So which order you, you decided to I go was, Yes, the St. Patrick's Missionary Society or the Kiltegan priests, as, as they were called. Okay, so Down it is in, the Mission Society and they are, okay, because I was yeah. reading that you, your mission work in South Africa as well as United States. Okay, so continue with this positive imprint in South Africa. Okay, <laughs> so we went, I was assigned, I, I did, uh, South Africa was just after Nelson Mandela. He was released from Robben Island 
on the 11th of February, 1989. I remember the date because it's the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes. And uh, he was released. And we went out then, a few of us went out there in the missions in September of 89, 1989. We were learning the language first, the Northern Sutu language. And I was going to spend about six months doing that, living in a very rural area, very poor electricity. Um, batteries often had to come on for, for to have the lights on and stuff like that. You know, chargers or whatever we had available to us to keep things going. I was about three months into learning the language when, and now bearing in mind as well, that there was no mobile phones at this time. The only communication I had with home was a phone call if I made it through a landline uh, and or else a letter. And the letter would take maybe 10 days. Right. So it wasn't as, as modern as it, as it is now. So I got a phone call from um, the diocesan office about the second week of December. My mother was on uh, to say that my dad was very sick. They didn't know whether it was a brain tumour or Alzheimer's or what it was. But the doctors thought I should be told and maybe to get home because they weren't sh they were very uncertain. So I booked my flight home from Johannesburg and uh, I was living about seven hours drive from Johannesburg and I got the flight there in Joburg and got home to Dublin. My dad was eventually diagnosed with a brain tumour and he was given three to six months and he actually died within, he was, he actually died on the 11th of the 14th of February the following year, which was a few months. He only got a few months, really, you know, he'd, he'd a brain tumour. So well, I'm I, so sorry, but I'm glad that you were able to fly back and be with yeah, the family. Absolutely. It was very, very meaningful and very special. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, I know he was he was very excited, actually, around the time I was ordained, which was really only six, seven months before all that. You know, he was very excited over me being a priest. And, you know, I suppose, you know, I was so thrilled that he actually lived to see that as well, you know. But anyway, after my dad died in February of 1990, I stayed at home with mum for a while and we organised everything, my father's grave and the headstone and what you do. And then I went back around April of 1990 and it was only back then three months when the phone rang again. This time it was my mother. She was very ill. She was after getting a heart attack and it was touch and go for her. So I really didn't know what to do because I was so far away and, you know, I felt guilty about having to go home again because I was only back a few months and then the cost of flights and everything like that. So I remember two Franciscan nuns come into me and I was really upset at the time and they said to me, what's wrong? And I explained to them, they said, for God's sake, go and book up your flight and go home and be with your mother. If she lives, great, you can come back to us. But if she dies, at least you'll be with her. So I did that and I went home. And I spent a month with her. She survived. She only died then in, in 2004, which would be would have been um, nearly 12, 14 years later anyway, you know. So I went back to Africa after that then. And I found it so difficult to settle down after that. I was still trying to study the Sutu, northern Sutu language and saying mass in it and stuff like that. I could say mass in the language all right, but I couldn't preach in it. I could preach in English and somebody would translate it for me. Then... I decided, look, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy at all. So about a year into that, then I came home because I just I just felt that I was missing out. I probably hadn't grieved over my father very much anyway. And then my mother being ill and all of that. So there was a lot of things going on in my head. And I came home for a while and I said, I want Kiltegan, my order, gave me some temporary appointments uh, as an army chaplain in the Curra County Kildare for a while, uh, working in Ochnacloy in County Tyrone, Northern Ireland for a while. 
And then I spent three or four months in America traveling around the States doing mission appeal work. Mission appeal work, it's like you go into a parish, you'd be, the parish would be notified or they'd be told in advance, the parish priest would be notified that, that there was a missionary priest, Father Ray Kelly, was coming to promote his society, the Kiltegan Fathers, and to raise money for them, to raise dollars for them in their work in Africa. I would then drive off from my location in America and maybe drive to, I remember, I, that time I had no fear of driving in, on the other side of the road either when you're a lot younger <laughs> now I wouldn't do it I don't think I do but I drove through Harlem I drove through the states I drove through New York I drove to Cape Cod I drove all over California down into Phoenix and Arizona you know I just was no problem you get into the car the beauty of the work was my working week was Saturday and Sunday but my weekend was Monday to Friday so I had a five-day well, that's weekend fun. <laughs> that's nice yeah you can sing a, a lot of weekend. songs on the road too <laughs> definitely Definitely. It was amazing, you know, because then, okay, I'd leave the parish on a Sunday evening, head back to my headquarters, and maybe Monday or Tuesday, I'd head off then for sightseeing all around the States and spend a few days touring around and back to another parish then on Friday evening again and that kind of thing. So it was great. So about three or four months of that as well. And then I came back to Ireland and had more temporary appointments. And I was kind of getting tired of temporary appointments because you never really settle anywhere when you're just going from A to B all the time. So I felt I needed something more long term. And I applied to my bishop in the Diocese of Meath, where I am here now, Bishop Smith, and is actually a native of my parish here in Oldcastle, where I'm, where I'm based as well. He only retired quite recently there, but I applied to him and he actually ordained me as well back in, in June of 1989. I applied to him and my superiors in Kiltegan were happy enough that I join the diocese for a couple of years and see what it was like. And so did I did you that. move from a order priest to an archdiocesan priest? Yeah, exactly. Okay. But I was still, I was still attached to the Kiltegan fathers until I could make up my mind. And about two years into working in my diocese here, I decided to be incarnated, which means you leave the society, the order, and you join the diocese. And, and that, that application has to go through Rome as well, but it's a formality, really, you know, it's a formality, you know. So I was in Mead Diocese now, and I worked in Navan in County Mead, which is a big town, about 40 minutes drive from where I am now. And uh, I worked there for nine years, which I loved. Um, there was nine, there was five priests there with me, four priests and myself working in the parish. And uh, did a great musical society in, in the town, and I became part of that. Performed in shows like Jesus Christ Superstar, Joseph and the Amazing and Guys. So what, what parts did you play? In Joseph, I played um, what was it, Joseph Reuben, one of the brothers. Uh, in Jesus Christ Superstar, I played Simon Peter, and uh, in Guys and Dolls, I played Nicely, Nicely Johnson, the big song, "Sit Down, Sit Down, Sit Down, Sit Down, Sit Down." You're rocking the boat. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yes. I don't know whether you do or not, but anyway. <laughs> no. Yes, and I'm. I'm right now. I have. What's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. What's yeah? The there buzz? you go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a great. Oh yeah, I was in Fiddler on the Roof as well, and I was Mottle the Tailor, which is the guy that falls in love and gets married to one of the daughters of of Tevye. That was a great show as well. I was kind of a real kind of sort of fragile character, but had some great songs in that show as well. And uh, then I was after nine years in Navin. I looked for a transfer down nearer to home because my mother was wasn't too well. And uh, then I was in a parish about. 15 minutes drive from my home place and I was about a year or two there when my mother was my mother died in 2004 and I stayed there for another two years and then the bishop appointed me parish priest here in Oldcastle where I am today and I'm 12 on my 13th year 
here in this parish now. What is one of your absolute favorite, I, I don't know if I want to use the word favorite, but one of the most inspirational sermons that you remember giving that you felt that you really inspired your parishioners, your congregation? Oh, gosh, that's a, <laughs> that's a hard question. <laughs> um, I don't know, usually, usually, I think I find I can, I can, my homilies, particularly at funerals, can be very meaningful. And, uh, you know, I do, I put a lot of work into them in preparing them with families and talking about the person who has died. And I know people find comfort in them and that, you know, particularly funerals. They just, people just need to, you know, I mean, you don't get the full story all the time about a person, but which, which you, you kind of share with them as much as possible about, about, uh, the life they lived and the goodness that was in each of us. And I mean, that, that's always my, my theory, that there is so much goodness in, in each one of us, you know, that um, we are good people doing the best we can and trying to, you know, live the, live the, the good, positive life that we can. And, and um, But I suppose I remind people as well that there are always people out there to knock us and to put us down and to make us feel lesser than we actually are. And I try to encourage people not to let that happen, particularly, you know, I suppose as well, because as I said we only get one we only get one shot at this going through this life and, and we have to do the best we can and give it the best we can. And that's that's my I try to get that message across as much as possible, I suppose, you know. Wow. So you have left positive imprints. Well, South Africa, because you certainly served over there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and are there any stories that that are, are just something that you remember so well that it, it changed you also when you were in South Africa? Because it's a different culture. Oh, very much. And I mean, bearing in mind that apartheid was supposedly breaking up, but it hadn't really broke up because I think when Mandela was released that time in February of 89, I think a lot of the black people expected like the country, just a, wa a magic wand to be waved over the place and everything was going to be all right. Father was sent down to South Africa to serve the people there, when he arrived, apartheid was supposed to have been breaking up, but Father was experiencing quite a number of situations where segregation was still taking place. It was stressful for him because he did not know how to change things. I suppose one, of, one or two of the things that really shocked me when I went there first was that I remember going to the bank one day and uh, there was a separate queue for black people and a separate queue for white people. So there was a massive queue out the door. So I just presumed you joined the queue and some of the people, some of the people behind the desk in the bank saw me and they, they called me forward and they said, come up, come up, come up here. And she actually dealt with me straight away. And it was only when I came out, I actually realized, you know, there was actually a separate queue for white people and a separate queue for black people. Was that, I mean, that had to have been something very stressful to have witnessed. It was. I don't know, for some reason, there was no way around it at the time. There was just... You know, that was that was it. And there were a few eye openers for me, really, in South Africa in those times, you know. And now we're talking about 30 years, 30 years later, and it's still not all right. It's still people are still struggling and in, in Soweto and in townships all over the country there. But I suppose some of the things that struck me were at the time, like I had to live in a white town and I couldn't live among the black people. Oh, my I had goodness. To well, could you serve them? Oh, yeah, I could serve them. Oh, yeah, yeah, I could. I was able to drive out to the different parishes with about 19 churches in our parish so you would touch base with most of them maybe over a month monthly period maybe once a month you know and um, for services for mass for baptisms for first communions and all of that weddings whatever had to go on as you would carry out in 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 the church 
So, um, yeah, you might, you know, the first Sunday of the month would be one place. The second Sunday would be another place. And you'd go around them all. You could have two or three play locations each Sunday or maybe Saturday evening. And then you were working in the heat as well. So it was pretty fairly heavy going, I have to say now, you know. And then not only that, but there was actually three languages in my parish. There was uh, Shangans, there was Northern Sutu, and then people spoke. People did speak English as well, but they spoke Afrikaans as well. So there was three or four, there was four five languages actually in the parish. So I was only learning one of them and trying to communicate in one of them, you know? You're not just serving through your, your work as a priest, you and as a friend, you have been this singing priest everywhere you've gone and have brought, <laughs> I mean, that brings joy to people when they sing and they go to shows and they dance and they, it, it's a yeah, joyful thing. Yeah, and yeah. your band, I, I, I'm trying to think of- Rafiki. How, how'd you come upon that name? Because it's a great name. Rafiki. Well, you see, the Kiltegan Fathers, the order I was with, worked a lot in Nigeria. And Swahili is the, one of the main languages in Nigeria. So um, it's one of the African languages. Okay. You know, so, so we thought about it for a while and we said, well, you know, let's come up with something African because we were doing this for Africa anyway, you know. Okay. Did you sing when you were growing up? We were we were a very musical family, though. My, my, mom and my mother played the piano and sung. My father played the accordion. My brother's musical, my sisters were musical. You know, as kids growing up, we were called almost like little show pieces when we'd go and visit some of the aunts or the uncles. We'd always be pushed out there. Go on, go and sing and go and sing a song for your Auntie Mary or your Uncle John or something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so we were shoved out there like to perform, you know. And strange, one of the songs I always used to sing and when they got to know about it, everyone used to ask me, was a song called The White Rose of Athens. Did you ever hear that song? I do not think I have. Hey, there you go. Check that one out. It, did you ever hear of a singer called Nana Muscuri? No. Greek, Greek, Greek. She's Greek. Okay, I will have to. Uh, I, you better check that one I out. I will so check you know. that one out. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, oh, yeah, Ray, Father, Ray, well, I wasn't a priest. And Ray, you have to sing the White Rose of Athens. You have to sing the White Rose of Athens. And at that time, you see, I had a sound of a falsetto voice. So I kind of could sing almost like Freddie Mercury, very high you know, go up to those notes. And I used to use that voice more than any other. I didn't even know I had actually a tenor voice, a good tenor voice <laughs> And you all. have a wonderful one. You know, until much later in life. Uh, and um, when I discovered that, then I kind of, now I can actually bring the two together with, with songs and music as well, which is great. Father shares some of his experiences with his time on Britain's Got Talent. I didn't really want to do it, but the, these uh, ITV in, in UK, um, like most places, are probably in the US as well, they do a lot of scouting from watching things on YouTube and stuff like that. So I actually, they were on to me for a while about possibility of entering the competition. And I said, no, no way. I says, no way would I do it because this is, <laughs> it's all about, I always feel it's all about the judges. And, and anyway, I wouldn't have the courage to get up and sing in front of Simon Cowell. Yeah. No way. No way. <laughs> I said, not at this stage of my life, you know, and I don't need that. I don't need that kind of pressure. And they said, well, we promise you, you'll have a very positive experience about it. And I didn't have to go through the initial auditions. I was straight into the audition in the London Palladium with three or four thousand people, I think, and then the four judges as well. And uh, I we, were, we decided on the song to sing Everybody Hurts because I knew I could sing it pretty good. And it's a very meaningful song. It was and, very meaningful. And when you say we decided, is this someone from the show, a producer from yeah, the show? Yeah, okay. Yeah, well, the show, 
But as well as that, I had recorded that song. It's on my album, one of my albums, um, Where I Belong album, you know, the song. And they probably heard, heard it from that as well. And it's a beautiful version of it, you know, and they probably heard that and they said, let's go with this, you know. So um, with that in mind, then I went over to London, actually, when I actually went over and you go through the whole procedure of signing contracts and meeting ITV1, ITV2, ITV3, all the different TV stations. They all want interviews. And and then I went out and, and, and performed the song. And um, I genuinely wasn't. I kind of thought and I thought, well, sure, look, at, I'll give it a shot. And if I get four or five minutes on TV exposure, it'll be worth it for that anyway. You know, that's and that was my ambition. Look, at, you know, after that, it doesn't matter what happens. So. I um, sung the song. Interestingly enough, what you saw and what you see on YouTube and what I sung were slightly different because the song is about five minutes long, but they actually cut it down to about two minutes. So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the song. So when I'm when you sing a song and the full story of the song, obviously you get more emotional into it. But but they brought out the best bits of it in fairness, you know, and in in the ITV because that's what they do, cut and paste anyway, you know. So. Um, but there was a, after I'd finished the song and I knew well the judges were, it's kind of like, you know, well, by watching them, that you have them, that you, they're, they're listening, they're, they're intent in what they're hearing. And um, the audience as well. And there was no, there was almost like, it was like, as somebody said, I almost like had them in a trance, but I didn't kind of see it like that. But uh, in, refl- in hindsight, you could see that they really were um, in tu- tuning into what I was singing. There was, when I'd finished the song, there was a pause for about three, maybe four seconds. I noticed that. And it was like, I thought, and that three or four seconds, I was thinking, I'll walk off the stage now and forget this ever happened because I didn't know what, there was just like silence. And I said, let me out of here, let me out of here. And I didn't know what to do. And I, but no, but I knew I had, because I've watched the program, I watched the program and I knew they'd have to make some comment. And I kind of said, OK, hit me with it. So and that's the way I felt, hit me with it. And then Simon Cowell stands up and starts cheering and a round of applause. And the four, the other three judges and the London Palladium just erupt then. It's almost like, you know, they were waiting for the God of judges to give them permission to do it. But they wanted, <laughs> they wanted to do it. They wanted to do it. And they, could, they were almost ready. They could, didn't want to hold back. But yet they were waiting for the God of God's judges to get up and lead this. And he did. And then there was an eruption of, of, of standing ovations after that, you know, which I was blown away by. Then I began, I wasn't nervous singing the song. Then I began to shake and get nervous. Oh, <laughs> Absolutely. Wow. And now the, the exorcism question in the beginning, which I thought yeah. was, was that a planned thing or did Simon? Totally, Kirsch... totally off the cuff. Again, there was a bit more in it because Simon... I think there was some, I, when Simon says, do you, you know, do exorcisms. And I says, I says, yeah, have you somebody in mind? But they cut that line out and they left in, um, they left in the bit where, uh, we, yeah, I, I, yeah, we can work, work. Because Simon did look over at David and he says, David, but they left that bit out. And then they have me coming in and saying, yeah, um, I, we can work on David whenever you want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, it, it certainly brought <laughs> out the humorous part of you. <laughs> <laughs> it sure did, yeah. It sure did, yeah. Yeah, that that yeah. Well, that was interesting, and and then it kind of all went from there as far as your record. Well, you had records out before that. Yeah, I've record uh, recorded an album after the Hallelujah story. The uh, I was uh, they actually built a recording studio for me here in the house to record the album, and Universal Music signed me up. Universal International signed me up, and we recorded the album here in my house. And then I went over to Vienna 
to tweet it for about a week just to do the final polishing off of it. The guy who produced it, the guys who produced it were from Vienna. They uh, they were quite happy to be spent nearly a month here in Ireland with me working on the album, and uh, that was great. It was amazing experience. I never thought it was hap- going to happen to me. Here I was, a sixty-year-old guy at the time, and this all happening to you, you know. Um, but that's and, so uh, inspiring that it did, and it's what is so positive about this is how you are you. Your parishioners and your congregation, they absolutely love you. And it didn't change you except for the better to to bring more positive actions and to inspire more positive achievements into our world. And I think that is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, you know, looking back on it, I didn't think I was doing anything great because what I was doing, I love doing and I love to sing, you know. So you know, for me to get the opportunity to sing and to record was a great experience. And, and but the volume of emails and letters that come in, for for example, after the Hallelujah experience and the wedding and uh, and um, and it was up on, on Times Square in New York. And I wasn't expecting any of this at all because I just I, what I did at that, that wedding was what I'd done for I've been doing for years, except it has been captured by somebody and put it up on on YouTube, and it's now almost, what, 66 million hits or something like that. What is super inspiring about how you sing is you sing with emotion. Yeah. It was true to heart. And that, when I watched that Hallelujah, it was, oh my gosh. And my sister and I, then we had to listen to all your songs and start buying them off of Amazon. And this was 1130 at night, and we were up till 130 in the morning. (laughs) And then the next night, we had to share them with my mother. And she was just so excited. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Yes, and that just brings me to the book, which is such a great book, Memoirs of a Singing Priest. And it took you, how long did it take you to write this? It, I suppose it was in my head for a long time before I actually started writing. And um, it was always my ambition, actually, to write. But I was more interested in actually writing about my mother because she was a midwife and she had so many stories of delivering babies. That time, there was no hospital deliveries. They were all home births. And uh, as the book says, even, you know, she delivered babies to traveling people on the side of the road and, you know, every, you know, different places, the poverty that existed in some houses and places. So, I mean, she often shared some of those stories with us uh, when we were growing up as children. And, and it was always my ambition to write my sister when she died. We were very close. And when mom would come back home, she'd leave her medical bag in the hallway. And my young sister that died and myself would sit up at the hallway each side of her medical bag and we'd be listening to the bag to see was there a baby in it because we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't figure out how she was bringing babies to every house in the countryside <laughs> and she wouldn't bring one to our house, you know. And, uh, you know, so I was, write, I was writing about some of that stuff and so all the memories, means the amount of stuff that comes back to you, you know, when you start writing, you know. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> A man called here one day, did you never think of writing a book? And I said, not at all. How would I write about, you know? So it kind of, that was the, the idea was sown then in my head. And so I sort of incorporated the two then. And, and in a sense, they are inseparable as well, because my mother's life obviously is my life. You know, I mean, she created me and, and, and uh, you know, she was so much a huge influence, probably in my life, my vocation, my priesthood, everything really, you know. And uh, I guess that's that's just the way it works, you know. So, so the book then, I told her story in a sense, in, I told my story in relation to her story as well in the book as well, you know, so I was going to actually call the, call of the title of the book, The Midwife's Son or something like that first. And then 
then you know the publisher said no we 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 need to more of the singing priest so i said okay okay let's they know best as regards publication and all that you know so yes it's a wonderful book and people in United States and Canada and other countries who have access to Amazon can purchase it from Amazon. And of course, in some other countries, it's available on the bookshelves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. it's so wonderful. You know, if I can make a positive, yeah, make people feel positive in any way in their lives, that's, that's, that's good for me, you know. And now the song, Everybody Hurts. The song that I want to talk about is Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. And I believe the writers were Bill Berry, Mike Mills, Michael Stipe, and Peter Buck. This song has such meaning for what we're going through. And little did you know that you singing it was going to be a blessing for humanity to know that we're all going through this. Did you want to talk a little bit about the words of the song and, and the deep feeling when you sing this song now? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, I when I was recording the song at the time, I probably didn't appreciate uh, the impact the song would have later on in years. But um, I, uh, I love the song, but uh, certainly I remember recording it. And I always feel that it's very, it's, I, I just get so emotionally involved in the song. I think partly as well, um, I sung it then on Britain's Got Talent, that TV show in front of Simon Cowell, and he was blown away by it. And I know, I remember singing at that time, and that was 2018, and my sister had died about two years before that with cancer. And I probably was still grieving a lot and hurting a lot, and still am even. I don't think it ever leaves you, you know. I think you learn to get on with life. But it never really leaves you, you know. And um, I always carry a photograph of her in in my wallet and my phone as well, just everywhere I go. And... I remember going before I went out on the stage that time to um, to sing that song. I looked at the photograph and I just said, "Reg, this is for you. You start rooting for me now for this. You know, you're up there. I'm down here." And uh, I felt the emotion straight away. Then watching it back afterwards, I probably didn't realize I could create such emotion, but I guess it was there from those feelings. And uh, you know, if there's been such a huge outpouring afterwards when people saw it on on on, on the tv show um people tuned into it some caught up at different times in their lives and um the people still go on to it at different times in their lives just to give them a little bit of hope and help and i mean as i always say we never ever really realize the the power of the things we do to affect people's lives and i suppose what everybody hurts I got some huge feedback on, and it was positive feedback. But uh, so it was great to know that. But a lot of the time we do things, we live our lives, we do good, and we get on with it. And we never expect thanks or gratitude, and we don't want thanks or gratitude for it. But most of the time we, we don't know of the impact we're, we're, we're causing to other people in a positive way, you know. So uh, certainly everybody hurts did that. Absolutely. And the song is reviving again because of what's been going on this year. Yeah. You mentioned there R.E.M. as well. And after I sung at that time, I was I was blown away because R.E.M. actually tweeted. I don't know where they live, somewhere in maybe America, some island or somewhere. But they actually tweeted that my 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 rendition of it was powerful and poignant, you know, which is an amazing comment. 
absolutely yeah, yeah, coming yeah, yeah. from the 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 lyricists and the, the lyricists and and the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that is incredible you know, what what a yeah. joy for them to have listened to that absolutely. song people can certainly go and buy your albums off of what iTunes or then again or you know if people wrote to me I can always send them copies you know there's no problem I have some here uh, and it'd be great to do. I have a new album coming out, by the way, as well at Easter time called Hallelujah Day. So that'll be available now as well. Oh, so that's coming up in Easter. Wow. You have yeah. a remarkable voice, but it's not just the voice, Father. It's the emotion that you put into it. It's it's sincere and it's real. And that's what makes it for everybody to listen to and feel. Every, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it certainly, I, I feel it myself when I'm singing the songs as well. I, I can just get wrapped up in it, but that's that's just the way I am, I guess. You know, you know. Well, you, I think yeah. I see that is a gift from God as well. You know, that's that's me. You know, that's that's what I am. I, pre- I I feel in a sense, I suppose, God has given me the gift and He's using me in that way. So that's 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 cool. I'm happy with that. I got a lot of emails as well from different people. One of the ones which really, and I mean, I I actually remember shaking afterwards because a lady wrote to me and I don't know what part of the world she's in but she said she has been suffering from chronic pain for years and she says I have my had my suicide letter written because she says I couldn't take it anymore and for some reason I was up during the night and I happened to turn on the computer and I flicked through YouTube and you came up she says and she says it was like the Holy Spirit she says I don't know what it was the Holy Spirit what it was it was almost like a calmness and a peace came over me and she says all of a sudden, she says, I could realize that there was hope in my life as well. And she says that uh, I wrote to her to thank her for her email. And she wrote back to say that her doctors had found a new drug, which was easing her pain a lot.
And she says, you don't realize, you'll never know the amount of people you've reached with those songs. And that, that kind of made me feel, oh, my God, what's going on here? You know, this is, you know, beyond me, really, you know. Well, you are such a delightful person and just so inspiring. And you were so heartfelt when you talked about your sister, the loss of your sister. Yeah. And so sorry yeah. over that. And mm. Death is just a difficult thing for everybody. And I... I yeah really like what you said in the beginning of this podcast or somewhere in the beginning when you were talking about how you just you needed to be home with your family when you were out in mm. South Africa and that I think that there is another positive imprint that people are inspired that it's okay to want to be with the family to keep those bonds together yeah. even though you yeah. have a commitment yeah. elsewhere but to know that you're just an ordinary person like the rest of the yeah. world yeah. but you are inspiring others yeah i would like to you know i as i said i don't see it that way at all i just do do the job i do it's strange i think when i went to south africa and went for the missionary order going back all those years ago i felt that well it's all or nothing i had to give it everything and I suppose afterwards when I was out there, I realized, well, I don't have to, you can still 
give a lot, but you don't have to give everything. I could still come home and work and be a priest and do a job and do a, you know, an inspiring job and still be at home with family and people I love. And because I suppose in a sense, you know, when you have the people that you love around you and are with you, then I think you do all the more because, you know, it's it's them that support you at the end of the day more than anybody else, you know. That's heartwarming. Oh, I'm happy. That was a lovely interview. It was lovely to meet you, to talk to you as well. And, and um, you know, I, I, I really, really, it's strange, you know, it's lovely to share the story when I, I don't get that, that often to share it now because everybody knows about it. So a lot of people don't ask me about it anymore. So it's actually lovely to go back on those years. And people really want to hear joyful stories. Good stories, absolutely. Very important. So we only got one journey, you know, we have to do the best we can. And well, Father, everybody hurts. Thank you so much for your love, service, and hope. Thank you so much, Father, for everything that you do. Thanks, Catherine. Lovely to talk to you. I so much enjoyed it. God bless, Catherine. Again, my website, yourpositiveimprint.com. And don't forget to hit that subscribe, follow, or download button now. Your Positive Imprint. What's your P.I.?